0: I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're just going to do a, a skim of where we've been the last uh, seven weeks together. This is the seventh week on the topic of belief that we've discussed, really the foundations of what Christianity is about. And so this will give us a summation of that passage of Scripture and, and our understanding of biblical truth as it comes forth in the book of Genesis. And then we're going to make the application, like the, the, the so now what. Um, we've, we've laid the foundation of what biblical Christianity is, and why we believe what we believe, and hopefully you've enjoyed that um, journey together as we've looked at it, even just from the first three chapters of the Bible, how the pillars of Christianity are founded in the first three chapters of the Bible, and that theme uh, of biblical truth continues throughout the rest of Scripture. The picture that we've painted together should help us have a, a lens in the way that we examine Scripture and what God communicates to us so, based on the last few weeks, if you've been on this journey with us together, the, the, we kicked off the series by, by just understanding who God is as He has revealed Himself to us in Scripture. Genesis chapter 1 starts in the very first verse, in the beginning, God, and He talks about the creation of God. God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Yahweh creates uh, Bara, which is, means out of nothing. Ex nihilo is what they refer to in, in Latin. He creates out of nothing. And we see the design of the first three chapters of the Bible as God creates, He creates intentionally. He creates with purpose, meaning everything he's designed has a specific reason for its existence. It's laid out for us beautifully as the Bible describes it poetically in God's creation. Over the seven days in which he creates, God speaks, life begins. Intelligent design creates with an uh, uh, intelligent designer creates with an intelligent design. Creating everything with a purpose. When God comes to mankind on the sixth day in which He creates us, the Bible does something unique in the design of mankind. When God designs us, it's as if God takes special attention to the creation of mankind in those moments while He's creating over the six days. When He gets to mankind, He pauses, breathes into us the breath of life, and formulates us or sculpts us from the earth. And intricately takes the the opportunity to design man. And as God creates over those six days, seventh day resting, he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. Designs man and says, it is very good. The pinnacle of creation was uh, mankind, the purpose which God has created us. It tells us Genesis chapter 1 and verse uh, 27, 28. It says, God created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So we reflect the image of our creator being made in his image. We can connect to him. We can relate to him. We can have a relationship with him because the the image in which he placed upon us, the characteristics of which we possess as mankind, God also possesses within his nature, meaning his communicable attributes, love, grace, goodness, long-suffering, peace, patience. In our relationships on earth, we experience those towards our relationship with God. We can connect with Him in that way. God makes us in His image, the pinnacle of creation. And therefore, He says in verse 28, go into the world and and subdue it and multiply, fill the earth. He's allowing us the opportunity being made in His image to express His glory by the way that we live our lives in this world. We reflect the glory of God or are designed to reflect the glory of God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, as God creates us in his image for relationship, we find Genesis chapter 3, the introduction of Eve with the serpent, the dialogue that takes place with the serpent. We we read in Isaiah chapter 14 that the serpent's desire was to be like God, beginning in verse 12 to 15 of Isaiah chapter 14. His idea, his thought was he could become God, and so therefore he's cast from heaven and in the Garden of Eden, shares that same lie with Adam and Eve. You can become like God, knowing good from evil. And that dialogue takes place in Genesis chapter 3, when, when, uh, when the serpent casts doubt into the mind of Eve. Surely God didn't say that you could eat of the tree, or if you ate of the tree, that you would die. Surely that's not what God meant. You're the pinnacle of creation. What God's doing is keeping the best from you, because he knows the moment you will, you will eat, you will know the difference between good and evil. And in the Hebrew text, that means not just knowing the difference between right and wrong, but rather declaring to God what is right, what is wrong, you in autonomy are separating yourself from God who created you from relationship and declaring yourself to be God. When Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, declaring themselves to be God, to be the ultimate authority, the Bible tells us that sin was introduced, and through that sin we are separated from our relationship with God. We dialogued over the idea of what sin is. Oftentimes when we think about sin, what we relate to as being sin is, is really just a consequence of what the action of sin produces. But when we talk about what makes sin sin, what really defines what is sin is that it, it violates the very nature of God. We use the example uh, of murder and adultery. The idea uh, of, of adultery, we often think about the repercussions of what adultery would produce in, in harming relationships. But what, where adultery finds itself in being sin is that, is that God is pure and God is devoted and, and God is faithful. And so when we live contrary to that nature which, given, which is given to us through the nature of God, we violate his nature which is ultimately what sin is and from that repercussions come. Man's sin against God. And the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And the Bible talks about sin, it literally means separation from god it's not talking about ceasing to exist but really death is separation when we physically die as people your body is separated from your spirit but we we are separated from god because the curse of sin is upon us holy god can't welcome sin into his presence and so the response of mankind to that we see from the beginning in genesis chapter 3 adam and eve's response was to run and hide from god and cover themselves in fig leaves as if to say to god god we're going to handle this sin on our and we're going to destroy it by our own power. And what we learned together, Adam and Eve created the first man-made religion. In the Bible, we reflected that to the law. In the Old Testament, you find the law. The purpose of the law isn't to show you how how you are holy or how you can avail to God's grace or how you can make yourself acceptable to God. The purpose of law is condemnation. In a very practical sense, relating it to, to the way we live in law today, that when a police officer pulls you over in society, it's not to tell you, great job in obeying the law. When you get pulled over, it's because there is a violation of the law. The intentions of the law aren't to show you how great you are, but rather it's, it's for condemnation. It's to show uh, your need in guilt and the same thing's true in, in Romans chapter three, in Galatians uh, chapter two and three, it tells us God's purpose for the law, it was for uh, recognizing our need for salvation, Which is where Genesis chapter three and verse nine picks up for us in Scripture that after Adam and Eve' sin, after they run and hide from God, that it is God that continues to pursue man, because God created us for relationship in Him, and while we couldn't reconcile ourselves back to God because of sin, Christ is the promise in Genesis chapter three who would come for the ultimate reconciliation for our lives. And so in verse nine of chapter three, the Lord comes into the garden in search of Adam and Eve. He says, the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Not that God didn't know where Adam and Eve is because he is is omniscient or where Adam and Eve was because he is omniscient, but rather he's pointing out to Adam and Eve the distance that now exists between he and them because of the sin that has separated them. And so in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we give the first declaration of the gospel in scripture, which continues a theme throughout the entire Bible. The entire Bible is about God's redemption for mankind through Jesus Christ. From the beginning, from the destruction that takes place in sin, to the promise in Genesis chapter 3, all the way to the end of Revelation, where God finally, before his people, wipes away all tears from their eyes, where there is no more pain, no more suffering, us enjoying our relationship with him in his kingdom for eternity. That is the theme of scripture. From beginning to end, God laying that out for us, how Christ would come for us, offering himself for us to redeem us from the curse of sin so that we can enjoy the relationship for which God has given to us by dying On the cross for our sins. Genesis chapter three and verse 15. In reference to the serpent, God says this, and I will put enmity, talking to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And it says her seed in this passage of scripture because we know Christ was born of a virgin. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The reference to the bruising on the hill is that to the crucifixion. And the reference to the bruising on the head is the crushing of Satan's kingdom, which we looked at last week, that that Christ would come and destroy his authority by establishing his kingdom, or excuse me, it was two weeks ago, establishing his kingdom. The grace of God made known to us. So the point of the story of Genesis throughout the rest of scripture is is while we are incapable of reconciling ourselves to God, when we, no matter how many religions we create, no matter how many fig leaves we try to cover ourselves with, when we were unable to rescue ourselves in our condition, God, by his grace, while he didn't have to, in his love, chooses to give his life for our sins, to pay for the cost of sin. That is grace unmerited favor that God has given us. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul, in reference to salvation, is pointing to the beauty of it, that God would lavish his love on sinners while they didn't deserve. Romans 5.8, for me, is always the verse that just demonstrates that. God demonstrates, it says, God literally demonstrates his love to us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning you in the depth of whatever you think the worst is that has been of your life. Jesus loved you enough to die for that. That God's love transcends beyond your lowest points. And that is his grace. Oftentimes of Christianity, when we demonstrate the magnitude of God's grace, the question then becomes. Then why do anything, right? Why why live your life for God than if Jesus just pays for it all? Let's let's just let's let's just live like hell because Christ paid for it by his grace. He, he's he's paid the expense of the cross, so it doesn't matter what you do. And people people don't understand why why you would choose to live for God than if, if Jesus pays it all. I mean what's the point if you don't merit favor from God by, by earning his love? And that's the the question they pose as if to suggest that the entire point that we gather here for on Sunday is just say, thank you, Jesus. Now let's all go out and live however we want, right? Yeah, that's our point. We gather together for nothing. (laughs) We just aimlessly do what we want at this point. Paul even posed that question in in Romans chapter 6. When when you get an understanding of God's grace, that's that's where Romans chapter 6, remember I just quoted 5, God demonstrates his love to us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5, verse 8. And then in chapter 6, now if you're getting the picture of his grace, really what his grace has done for you, Paul then poses the question at the beginning of the chapter, what shall we say then? Are we, continue, uh, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Like let's, let's, What about this idea? Let's go out and live as sinfully as we can just to show how much Jesus' death really covers our sinfulness. And Paul in Romans 6 just walks through the answer to that question, but he, he begins with this. He says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Or do you not know that all of all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Paul's pointing back to the identity that we had before Jesus, and the identity that you have now that you're in Jesus. This is if he's saying in this verse, "Why would you do that? Why would you choose to live in sin?" Do you remember the kind of person you were before Christ? You couldn't rescue yourself. You were condemned. But Jesus rescued you from the kingdom of darkness, from the prince of the power of the air, from the ruler of this world. That's Satan. And he brought you into his kingdom. You've been baptized into Christ. That means immersed into Jesus. Your identity now is his identity. Your kingdom now is his kingdom. And Paul goes on and argues that it's, it, you've been bought with a price by the precious blood of the lamb. You consider the magnitude of that sacrifice. What the Bible refers to that when, when Jesus paid his life for us is this is, this is a covenantal relationship, a covenantal love. When we begin to get a picture or understanding of what it means to live in covenant with God, it helps us understand that, that what we are to do is, is not not to go live in sin so that His grace may be abounding. and We can brag about the extent of God's grace, but rather reciprocate in the relationship of covenantal love or covenantal relationship. Let me explain a little bit of, of just, when we use the word covenantal relationship, what that means in Scripture. Because when it comes to Christianity, um, in our society today, we, we live and operate often in, in contractual relationships or, or contractual uh, connections. But covenantal relationship, covenantal love, it runs deeper than just uh, contractual relationship. And Let me, let me give a, a backdrop to understanding the difference between covenantal relationship, which is what Jesus did for us, and contractual relationship, which I believe is what religion is about. Covenantal relationship, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's going to be, it's promised in Christ in which he would give his life for us. That theme continues throughout scripture. In fact, the reason we refer to the Bible as Old and New Testament, it's really Old and New Covenant. Genesis, or Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 34. We, we've looked at that together a couple of times throughout this series. What it means that, that the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 31, 31, that Christ is coming to establish a new covenant. Which is the same promise he gave in Genesis 3. The idea of that covenant continues throughout the rest of the Bible. It's quoted in, in Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, that same passage in Jeremiah 31. But the idea of covenant, when we begin to grab the understanding of what covenant means, it, it, really, it really starts to, to add uh, and, and condense itself um, and, and paint itself in such a beautiful way in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham's at a place where he's doubting. He's later in, in years— Genesis, end of chapter 11, God calls Abraham's family uh, out of the land of the Chaldeans in Iraq into the promised land in Canaan. And he tells them in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, that through him, all nations of the world would be blessed. Even in Genesis chapter 18, I think in verse 18, through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed when you get to Genesis chapter 15, though, there's an important picture that takes place because at the beginning of this chapter, Abraham's doubting, like, God, are you really going to do this? Are you really through me, this, this older man who's passed his years to have children, I'm nearing 100, are you really, really going to use me to, to, to create a, a, another child and through that child, bless all nations? God's identifying through Abraham, that's where Jesus would come. Through the people of Israel that would begin with Abraham, that's where Jesus would come. And so he's starting Genesis 15. God, are you really going to do that? And God tells Abraham, I'm going to do it so much so that you're not even going to be able to, to, to count the number of people that are blessed through you, the number of people that come through you. Look at the stars of the sky, more numerous than the stars of the sky. That's how many people will be blessed through, through what I want to do through you, through the covenant that's going to come through you. And so he tells Abraham to go, go gather animals and he's going to make a covenant with them. And Abraham gathers the animals and brings them. And then it says this, then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Meaning what God is doing with Abraham here is is traditional to what it means to make a covenant. It's literally in the Hebrew text, means cutting a covenant. Abraham kills an animal, he lays either animal on either side, and when they would make a covenant, two people would would pass through the middle of this animal that was cut in two, saying if we don't uphold the obligations to this covenant, that that may what happened to these animals happen to us. This is sacred, this is important, this is life. And so Abraham cuts these animals in two and wants to uh, pass through them as the tradition is. And in verse 11, the birds of the prey came down upon the carcasses and Abraham drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram or Abraham. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. It came about when the sun had set. And it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. When the story, as Abraham lays these animals aside, the Bible tells us that God calls a deep sleep to fall on Abraham. While Abraham is asleep, a representation that is God, which is is a smoking oven, a flaming torch, passed between these pieces, this is... This is the same manifestation that God used for Israel as He's leading them through uh, the wilderness, wandering through the wilderness under Moses as they came out of Egypt. A flame by night, this cloud by day. And what it's saying in this passage is the presence of God makes this covenant with Abraham, but God doesn't require Abraham to make this covenant with him, it's on the Lord. It's a picture of his grace again. The coming of Jesus. It's, it's not by your merit and the gift of eternal life. It's not by what you've earned, but rather while we are sinners, Christ died for us. In the picture of Abraham, Abraham's not passing through this covenant because God wants to demonstrate that it's by his grace that he is offering this to us. And so it's important to understand the difference between what it is to live in a covenant relationship and a contractual relationship. In our contractual society, we make contracts to obligate us. And you think anything that you do these days, you sign your name here or you click yes here if you agree with the terms, is all based on uh, on contracts. The, the idea of contract is that when you fail in the contract, therefore you, you, you must pay to make restitution for the failure for the contract that you agreed to uphold. But in a relationship that understands covenant, when you fail, there is forgiveness. In a contractual relationship, we seek people to get We look at people as a means for our own self. But in a covenantal relationship, we seek to give. Covenantal love recognizes that people will fail and we serve for their benefit. Contractual uh, relationship, if people fail, they must make amends. In a contractual relationship, and even if you bring this into marriage relationship, if, if it's just a contractual binding to you, you see the other person as the one that is intended to make you happy. Their obligation is to your happiness. But in covenantal relationship, you see that relationship as an opportunity to get beneath the person to serve them so that they may become who they are called to be before the Lord. And in that covenantal relationship in Christ, Christ gives of his life, not contractually because he wasn't obligated to, but covenantally he he serves for us to the point of death so that in him we might experience the newness of life. In that we find the health of the relationship for which we were created in Christ. See, ultimately in contractual relationships, when both people seek the other person just to make themselves happy, what often happens in those relationships is when they, when, when they fail, you certainly aren't happy, but often, and only you look at that relationship for the purpose of making you happy, you, you find yourself very self, self-focused in that, and ultimately, neither person ends up happy in that party because they're all about trying to get what they can from the other individual. But in a covenantal relationship when you serve to the blessing of each other, to see the other person becoming the person for which God has created them to be. Both people are blessed in that relationship. Covenantal love goes beyond contractual love because contractual love only holds you to an obligation, but covenantal love is about serving beneath them even in failure. You think in a, in, a, in a basic sense, when you make a, a phone call to a doctor's office and you want to go in for an appointment, if you don't show up for that appointment, the doctor to them, they just move on to the next patient. Why? Because it's a, a contractual agreement that you have established. And so they have no need to then call and say, hey, you missed your appointment. Are you doing okay? Where were you? But, but covenantal love in that sense, because it's not contractual, because the interest is for the benefit of the other person. When the obligation is held, you continue to seek after them to, to encourage them wherever they are in their life. Whatever we need. So co- covenantal love runs deeper than just contractual love because it's, uh, it's thought it's for the well being of the other person. That is what Jesus establishes with us. That's why in Genesis 18 18, when he's talking to Abraham, he says, Abraham will surely become a great nation and mighty nation and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed because the obligation isn't up to Abraham. It was a covenant established in Christ. And it's in that relationship when in your weakness, God still pursues you. And in your sin, God still pursues you because God is seeking you. And for the reason he has created you, which is in relationship with him, and in that relationship, the best which God has created you is found. It's when you experience that love and you're served in that way that your cup fills in him to be able to look at the rest of the world and get beneath those around you and serve them because Christ has demonstrated his love for you. That's why the Bible tells us in Corinthians that you are a new creation. Old things have passed, all things have become new because the covenantal relationship of Jesus' love has been extended to you in such a gracious way that it has transformed your life. And Jesus, knowing this, and to his covenantal community, says in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And then he says to them in Acts chapter one, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even the remotest parts of the earth. This, this covenantal love is to, to, be, to be declared and shared and emulated in his people because that, that love that Christ ha- has given to us builds us up in such a way that we're able to serve those around us because we have been served by such a glorious king. Romans 6 When Paul says then, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? The answer to that, absolutely not, because we've never been loved in such a way that God himself would give his life on our behalf in in this covenantal relationship that we've been invited to. See, for a Christian to ask the question, how, how close can we live to the edge? How close can we walk the line of sin with, with, without getting in trouble with God? If, if you're even beginning to ask that question, it's, it's such an unhealthy question that's so far, so far removed from the relationship which God has called you to because the question shouldn't be, how close to the edge can I live my life? But rather, how close can I get to Christ to enjoy that relationship in him for which he has lavished his love on me? We understand covenantal love. We find that the Christian life, it's not about inviting God into my kingdom. But it's about me joining him in his kingdom. To connect with such a king that has extended his love in such a a, a glorious way. And if you think about this for a minute, this covenantal love invites us into relationship at a depth, quite quite frankly, you've never experienced in any other relationship because no one has ever loved you the way that Jesus has loved you. Now you think about covenantal relationship and connection to your own individuality for a moment. In Genesis 3, and the story of the serpent unfolds, the problem in Eve's step is that she is in pursuit of her own autonomy. So God, Yahweh, is the only being that finds the purpose of existence in himself. Everything else created finds the purpose for the existence outside of themselves. Yet in the garden in Genesis when Eve is having a conversation with the serpent, she's, she's developing her identity separate from God in her own autonomy, which the serpent says, surely, surely you won't die. When you partake of the fruit, the only reason God doesn't want you to have it is because you're gonna become like him and knowing good from evil. And the serpent waits until Eve is by herself in her own autonomy to share about this autonomy that you, you will become like God and you will declare what's right and wrong. And in that, sin is born. But, you know, when you consider the covenantal relationship as explained throughout the rest of the Bible, what God calls us for in relationship, oftentimes when we read the word you in Scripture, we just think about ourselves. But when the Bible really refers to the word you, generally, most of the time, or a lot of the time, it's an expression to the entire body of Jesus, or of Christ. In Jeremiah chapter 30, it says this, you shall be my people, plurality, all of you will be my people, and I will be your God. In Romans chapter 12, one of the most famous verses I think Christians often quote, it says, I urge you, brothers, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual uh, service of worship. When it's talking about you giving your life to God in Romans chapter 12, look at it. It's talking in the plurality of who we are as a body, you brethren, you in the plurality, this covenantal community in service to one another for the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians three sixteen, you are the temple of God. This idea of you again is plural. You all are the temple of God. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 22, you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. It's all of us together. It's not this individual identity, but it's what God is working in in our midst as a group called to him. Saying this covenantal community It's not about the individual, but about the entire community that's described as the body of Christ. What we become in Jesus, we become together. And God, as his body, as Jesus has, has emulated for us this covenantal, sacrificial life for our benefit, God's calling to his people and being a light to this world, is that his covenantal community would then demonstrate that love that Jesus has demonstrated to us by the way that we serve one another. It is foreign to the idea that you live your Christian life by yourself. That if you understand what Jesus has done for you, the the pursuit of your life would be to think about other people and how you could use what God has given to you to serve them for the benefit of the body that God has called us to be collectively. What we become, we become together. It's even to go so far as to say Just simply saying you belong to Jesus, yet doing nothing about it, begs the question, do you belong to Jesus? Because those that enter into that covenantal community want to display the covenantal love of Christ. I recognize in saying that that at some points in our lives, religiously or not, somewhere at some point we may have been burned, maybe we've stuck our head out and, and we got into groups and, and we've been been mistreated or things didn't go the way that we wanted to. But can I tell you that if you live Christian life in autonomy, Satan still wins. Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves as the gift of God, but in 10, you're created in Christ Jesus for good works. And now what Jesus has done in you, he wants to reflect the beauty of that in this world. That more than anything, what Satan would desire to do is, is regardless if you belong to Jesus or not, is just to stop the living of that Christian community in, in your life, to make you so individualistic that you don't see how you can bless the world through what Christ has done in you. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, I think, fights against that thought that in our sinful nature, we, we, we want to seclude ourselves and we want to isolate ourselves. But in Hebrews three thirteen it says this, but encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, what this verse isn't saying is, now go freak out about not sinning, okay? <laughs> like, the, the point of this passage isn't so you walk around and just be like, oh, that's a sin, no. Oh, that's a sin, no. Oh, that's a sin, no. But rather, the point of this passage is simply to say, what God's interested in is who you're becoming. God's called you for a relationship in Him. The Christian life isn't about avoiding sin. It's not about asking the question, how close can you get to the boundary before God considers it wrong? But rather the question is, how can you get closer to the covenantal love in which Jesus has expressed towards you? Every day, how can you experience this? And the point of this passage is to say, sometimes when we live in our own little bubble, in our own little world. We become blind to the things that are, that are separating us in our relationship with God. But it's when you live that out in community that people can encourage you and call you out and and hold you accountable and lift you up and build you up so that you can continue to pursue that for which Christ has has created you. Hebrews 10, the thought continues on, but let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit is of some, but encouraging one another. Look, we're not here because it's an obligation. We're here because this is the place where the extent of God's love is magnified. The church proclaims not contractual love at obligation, but covenantal love in Christ. This is the place where that is proclaimed in the world. This is the place where people can come together and finally, for the first time in their lives, maybe even experience what love truly is. That it's not something that's merited, but in, in, in essence, it's extended to you. Not because of you, but because of the goodness of your God. One of the reasons that we want to end with this in the Believe series together is because for the first six weeks, we laid the foundation of what Christianity is and validated why it's it's good to believe in the truth of what Christianity is, so that with comfort and security, you could see the foundation of your God, so that when you put this kind of trust in God, you know he's dependable. that we in that. Not forsaking the beauty of what Christ has done, but, but earnestly seeking to gather together, holding the confession of our hope without wavering because of the extent of God's love. Paul in Galatians. There's two verses where I'm gonna end in the book of Galatians, but in Galatians chapter five and verse one. And recognizing what Jesus did it says this: "It was for freedom. Christ set us free. Contractually, we were in bondage. We were bound to darkness, we were bound to sin. We were bound to another kingdom. And Jesus has set you free free to an eternity with him free to experience the life for which he created mankind in the book of Genesis you're free when Paul's writing this passage he's writing on the backdrop of religion he's telling the people don't be bound to the idea of religion and the contractual yoke it brings but rather understand this covenant to love Jesus has set you free And then in verse 13, he says this. This should be the word for. For you were called to freedom, brother. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, which is talking about religion again, but through, look, love, serve one another. That's covenantal language. That in Jesus' community, the question is not how can I serve you so I get what I want, but how can I serve you so that we together can become who God has called us to be? Can I tell you one of the draining things in church community is when we don't understand covenantal love over contractual love. Or covenantal relationship over contractual relationship. Relationship. Because the idea will become, well, I come to church on Sunday because I I owe God this favor and I did my favor so God would be happy with me. That's contractual. Or you walk in the building and you see people as their job is to serve you, to fill you up. But you never see the idea of God's covenantal love and how you can engage in community to love them the way that Jesus has loved you and they the same. And it becomes draining. Because what happens in an environment like that is there are people that will get covenantal love and they will give and they will give and they will give, but it's never reciprocated. But when the body understands what covenantal love is among itself, and they begin to live that love for one another... They also demonstrate that love outside of their gathering places, and others find that attractive that in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of nothing to offer, still someone would come to them and someone would love them and someone would care about them and someone would seek the best for them. And why would you do that? It's not because you're obligated but it's because you've been loved in such a way that this love has set you free. And therefore, in verse 13, you were called to freedom, brethren, then do not turn your freedom an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's one of the most attractive things I think about, about soldiers in, in service who give their lives for other people putting their lives on the line they, they they are put in positions to rescue someone from a circumstance they're laying their lives down for the benefit of another you need to consider these thoughts for a moment what about failure right cuz i can tell you in a covenantal community the only one perfect is jesus And in serving one another in that sense, we might expect someone in that community would fail the other person. But that is the point of covenantal love. In our failures, we still care for one another. But when you think about covenantal community and relationship to Jesus, Jesus compares our relationship to him to that of marriage. But to be honest, none of us can be the perfect spouse Jesus needs, needs us to be. And in that moment, when you consider the fact that when Jesus calls you to be his bride and you can't be that perfect spouse, you have two choices. You can run away from the idea of of, of failure. You can comfort yourself by the character of the one you have married, which is Christ. None of us can do what God's called us to be. That's really what makes this journey with Jesus so great. It's not because we're worthy. but because he is, and even in my failures, and even when I might feel like I should run and hide and I can't be the bride that Jesus has called me to be in him, he still loves and he still pursues, and his interest is the still uh, giving of his life so that you can become that for which he has called you to in him. That type of love, when it is displayed, it is healing, it is life-giving, it is beautiful, it is what the body of Christ is about. And it's what God sends us into this world to represent: A bride preparing herself for her groom. Us this morning, his body, believers, we should understand better than anyone that the reason Christ has come for us is to set us free. Jesus, in pursuing you, is after one thing your relationship in Him made available through what He has given to you. And what we become, we become together, not obligated contractually, but covenantally invited in by the extent of His grace. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.